Thank you, worship team. Good morning, church. It's great to see you all on this week before Thanksgiving. Uh, man, it's gonna, everybody's going to eat a bunch of turkey next week, and, and uh, then there's going to be a big game, and somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, and somebody's going to be unhappy. I think I'm just going to sign one of the other guys to preach next Sunday. I think I'm just teasing. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts 15, if you would. Acts 15. We are, uh, Paul, we are in the spot in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first, what's called their first missionary journey, right? And uh, they're now back at their home church, which is in Antioch of Syria. There's more than one Antioch, kind of like there's more than one Springfield in the United States of America. There's more than one Antioch there in Antioch of Syria. And uh, there they are getting refreshed and probably doing some gospel ministry there. And uh, later on, they're going to go on some other journeys, but something odd is happening in their church, and uh, we're going to read about that today. But uh, I'm a World War II fan, and uh, like to study history, and as World War II was raging on, uh, each side was trying to figure out how to get the tactical advantage over the other, the Allied and the Axis forces. And one way the Allied forces attempted to gain advantage was by deception. So they formed the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops, otherwise known as the Ghost Army. And uh, these guys uh, engaged in all kinds of deception. Basically what they did is they figured out a way to make an inflatable army, right? Inflatable tanks, inflatable jeeps, inflatable, uh, you know, uh, guns like howitzers and stuff like that. And then they used visual deception, obviously, with this stuff. But then they also used sonic deception. So they would roll up in a truck, like an actual truck, not an inflatable one. And they would have big speakers on it, and they would play very loudly the sound of tanks running around and jeeps and cars and troops talking and orders being given. So they would engage in sonic deception. They would script out and send radio transmissions as if there were a real army at this location. Now, you know, this was like four guys, you know, Leon and Bob and Fred. It was like just a small group of guys. But they got together and they could make this whole inflatable army and create this whole big act as if there was a, a bunch of forces amassing at this one spot. They even did some deception called atmospheric deception where they would use actual, like, for example, they would send a scout, right? They would send a scout ahead and actually run into the bad guys and then they would scurry back as if, oops, I wasn't supposed to do that, hoping to draw the Axis forces to attack the ghost army. When in reality, the Allied forces were really trying to attack somewhere else and trying to draw their attention to this ghost army. It's kind of an interesting, interesting tidbit of history. Satan is always trying to gain a tactical advantage over God. I don't know if you know that or not, but he is on the earth. And there's a battle going on for human souls. And one of the things that we just need to recognize is that if Satan can convince people, if Satan can convince people that the forgiveness of our sins is based on our actions, in other words, if he can just change the gospel a little bit and not make it something that's a free gift of God, but make it something that we earn, then... He can divert us into a whole different way of thinking, a whole different way of living, 
Because now we'll spend our lives, instead of resting in the gospel, administering according to the gospel, we'll spend our lives wondering, am I good enough to enter heaven? Have I done enough to get to God? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Perhaps you're familiar with it. I hope, I hope that you are, and if not, I hope that you read it. It's really fun, a uh, fun read. Now, it's C.S. Lewis. It's not scripture, but uh, in this book, C.S. Lewis uh, gives us kind of a dialogue, uh, some letters that are being written back and forth between two demons who are trying to fool and torment people, screw tape and wormwood, right? And in the book, he says, he says this, these two demons are talking back and forth, and they say this, we want him, that's the human, to be in maximum, in the maximum uncertainty, so that his mind will be filled with contradictory pictures of the future every one of which arouses hope or fear. There is nothing like suspense and anxiety for barricading a human's mind against the enemy, and in this case, the enemy is God. He wants men to be concerned with what they do. Our business is to keep them thinking about what will happen to them. Now, the distinction is subtle. Seems subtle as as we talk about it this morning, but it's huge. To get for God's enemy, Satan, to get us to think about something completely different is a huge thing. And we find ourselves in a similar situation in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, we're going to read about some people that were trying to distort the gospel and what the church did about that. So the question is this, uh, what events triggered the the church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15? What events triggered the church council in Jerusalem in Acts 15? Now, Acts 15 is a long chapter, and we're, not gonna, we're only going to cover the first couple of verses today, um, and then l- larger chunks in an ongoing way. But today, uh, the outline of, of Acts chapter 15 kind of goes something like this. First, you have the problem, right? And then you have the plan, what the church is going to do about it. And then you have the actual meeting in the deliberation, right? The solution, and then the communication of that solution to the other churches, Today we're only going to really be talking about the problem and the plan. The problem and the plan. So let's get into it. Let's first talk about this. Uh, Number one, people are always trying to add to or distort the gospel. People are always trying to add to or distort the gospel. Look at verse 15 of Acts chapter, verse 1, sorry. Verse 1 of Acts chapter 15. It says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, there's a lot going on here, all right? I mean, Paul and Barnabas are just fresh back from their journey. They're operating, they're, they're living within the church of Antioch there. And all of a sudden, in Acts 15, we get this new thing that's happening. Some men are coming, up from, are coming down from Judea. The way that the, these ancient thinkers thought about this is Judea is higher in elevation than Syria. And so to come down from Judea means come down in physical elevation. It's kind of a weird thing. Anyway, first of all, what we see here is we've got men that are operating out of, outside of any defined leadership structure. Okay? Men operating outside any leadership, any defined leadership structure. We're going to, and I'm, I'm kind of getting out of this portion of the text, but later on in verse 24 of Acts 15, we're going to see that the church in Jerusalem, because Judea, right, Judea is the region where Jerusalem is at. It's further south than Syria. It's quite a ways further south. And uh, these men came up, came 
to them from Judea. And in verse 24, we're going to learn that the leadership in Jerusalem, the Christian church leadership in Jerusalem, did not send these guys with this message. This was not an official message brought to them from any of the leadership in Jerusalem. They just came on their own accord. Now, why did they come? Why did they come? I mean, this was not a short journey. According to my Bible map, right, the distance from Jerusalem to Antioch of Syria is like 320-some miles, which, you know, for reference, is the distance from here to Chicago, right? It's, it's you know, and they didn't have, you know, Hondas. So it took them a minute to get there. So why did they make this journey? Why did they come all the way to Antioch to tell the church there that they've got the gospel wrong unless a person is circumcised according to the law of Moses, the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, uh, scholars speculate a bit that these men were Jewish, probably Jewish followers of Jesus Christ, um, and that they, they somehow could not let go of the old way, of the old tradition, right? The old, uh, old Testament law, the customs, whatever. And so they're probably Pharisees, which means they were scattered about the land of Israel. These guys happen to be from Judea. And they would teach in their synagogues and train the people in God's word. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, they could not let go, they could not get past the, they, they could not come to understand that Jesus had fulfilled the Old Testament law, and they no longer needed to walk in that, but they were having a, a tough time with that. So, that's what they were doing. Now, I don't know, uh, I don't know what's going on, but these guys, as we often see in our world today, they, they had a leadership problem, right? They weren't operating in any leadership, and they were just saying what they wanted to say. Oftentimes today we see leaders who they either lack character or they, they don't investigate to fully understand what's going on. They, they, they just become convinced in their own mind that their way is right, and they're just going to keep saying that over and over until uh, somebody gives in. And so that's what these guys are, are doing. So they come to them and they bring them this, this argument. You must be circumcised according to the customs of Moses. Unless you're not, unless you are, you cannot be saved. Now, uh, I, I want to give Satan some props here. I would say that on a level, on a, uh, if I was to rate them 1 out of 10 on trickery, I'd give this a 10 out of 10, right? I mean, let's go back and look and see what the um, text says precisely. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. How long had circumcision been around? Know your Bible history. Is it Moses or before? Way before Moses, right? All uh, Circumcision goes all the way back to Abraham, right? Which is like considered the father, right? The father of the Jewish faith right? So, you know, this, these guys aren't rolling into town saying, look, you have to follow the, the festivals, you have to make sacrifices, you have to do all these things. They're just, they're, they've narrowed it down to one thing. You must be, uh, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision has been around since before Moses, so you could see where people would be like, huh, well, maybe it's true. Maybe we should consider this, you know, like a, a 
they were doing a really good job. And, and this is where I, I find, I don't know about you, I find this is where Satan attacks. He attacks not in the big picture stuff of the Bible, not in the, in the things that are just solidly um, settled. He attacks in the gray areas, right? Like he, he attacks in the things that are a little bit less clear. We have a harder time figuring out, right? Satan will attack the church and say, you know, we'll, we'll attack the church on style. We'll attack the church on, um, you know, particular actions that you should or shouldn't take. Those actions being, uh, if taken to excess, bad, but in moderation, okay. And he will attack and say, no, you have to, you have to, you can't do that at all if you want to be saved. He attacks in the gray areas. And so, this is what these guys have done. They've added circumcision to the list of things that need to be done in order to be saved. Now, in order to attack the gospel, here's the question that, that we have to wrestle with. In order to attack the gospel, if you're going to change the gospel a little bit, we're going to get into what the gospel is here in a minute, does it need to be a salvation issue? And I would say the answer to that question is yes. In other words, there's other churches that practice different styles of, you know, we have a style of worship at this church. We have a style of the way we do things, and, and, you know, you may like it or not like it or whatever, but we have a particular style. Other churches do diff different things in different styles, and that's fine. But the moment that you say, you know, you, you must have pews or chairs or whatever, pick the seating of your choice, um, you must have this to be saved, that just changes the gospel. Can we agree on that? That changes the gospel. Okay, so you see what's going on here. These guys are rolling into town, and they're trying to add or distort the gospel. This is happening all the time within the church. It's a historical reality that people have tried to add to or take away from the gospel. All right, the second thing is that we see in the text is that gospel additions cause confusion. We just kind of talked about that, but look at what it says in verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders uh, about this question. So, however Paul and Barnabas were deliberating and debating about this with these men, it wasn't clear. It was causing confusion. It was, it, it was a source of some people were buying into Paul and Barnabas' version. Some people were buying into, into, there wasn't clarity, okay? This is often, like I said earlier, this is often the case. Now, let's, use, let's think of some examples here. The churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region, and it's the region, right, that Paul and Barnabas had just came back from in going to plant all these churches. I mean, they started in Cyprus, but they did a lot of their work in the area of Galatia, right? And Paul, th this, this problem of people coming along and adding to the gospel, whether it be circumcision or the Old Testament law, and putting them to, this issue became an issue in that region. It be, this, this, this germ of an idea that you have to combine what Jesus did on the cross with Old Testament teachings and law, that false gospel began to take root around the areas where Paul and Barnabas had taught later on. But, but the book of Galatians is 
is illustrative, it's helpful for us to understand how big a deal this was to the Apostle Paul. So take your Bibles and turn to Galatia, Galatians, and let me just read to you uh, the opening. And let me just say this as we read this. If you, I would encourage you today, this week, read through Galatians. It's not a tremendously long book. Probably can do it in one sitting, right? But read through the book of Galatians and just pay attention to how strong and passionate Paul is about what's going on. The, the churches of Galatia were in danger because they were starting to believe a distortion of the gospel. So let me just read a little bit of Galatians here. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from, this, from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pause right there. I know what you're thinking. This is a great letter. There's nothing. Okay, Paul's about to give like an atomic elbow to the midsection, like from the top turnbuckle. Like, listen, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul is going to go on to just not leave anything out. Like to, he's going to tell us how he real, really feels on this topic, right? Of, of having a different gospel or a false gospel. It's a big deal to Paul. And so, it's... Paul does a, a very good job in Galatians chapter 3, and, and we're not going to read it, but you can read it for yourself. Paul does a really good job in, in Galatians chapter 3 of explaining to the people why God gave them the law in the first place. And once they, hopefully once they understood that, they would understand why the law is no longer in effect. Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3 that from the time that God formed his people, the people of Israel, until the coming of Jesus Christ, who would have to die on the cross to pay for their sins, right? There was a time span there. And so God gave them the law for really two reasons that he makes the argument for in Galatians 3. Number one is to show Israel, but also by extension, us as human beings, that we cannot obey rules, laws, God's word, we cannot, we cannot in our sinful state obey it perfectly. And oh my gosh, was Israel not a perfect example of that reality? How they walked away from God time and time again? So the first purpose of the law was to let them know you can't obey God's law perfectly. 
But then the second and kind of more subtle reason that God gave them the Old Testament law is to give them a, a foundation to uh, give them a, a foundation of rules and regulations to live by, so that they can understand what God expects from them. In Galatians three twenty four, depending on your English translation, it's going to say schoolmaster. He, the law was a schoolmaster. The law was a tutor. In the ESV, it says the law was a guardian. So it says, <clears throat> so verse 24, Galatians 3, 24, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Their obedience to the law was not what saved them. It was their faith in God that saved them, but God gave them a foundational set of guidelines to live by so that they knew what God expected of them. And so as they went by, as they went through time and they began to lose faith in God and put their faith in false gods like Baal or Ashtar or whatever, and the prophets would come along and say, look, you need to put your faith in God. You need to get back to God. If they didn't have the law, then the, arg the question might have been, okay, we're going to get back to God. How do we do that? The law gave them those guidelines. The, the law gave them that guidance. But it was only a tutor or a schoolmaster or a guardian until the time that Christ came. And when Christ came, he paid the penalty for their sin, provided that they put their faith in him. Right? So, there's a very good, there's a very good, again, I would encourage you to read through Galatians, and I think you'll pick up pretty fast how, number one, how passionate Paul is not to add to the gospel, not to distort the gospel, and secondly, what the purpose of the Old Testament law was in the first place. In our modern day times today, we, we still have people to this day that are trying to add things to the gospel, right? Uh, and usually it goes something like this. You know, unless, you're, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. And that's kind of what legalism is all about, right? Legalism is like, you know, unless you... And fill in the blank unless you do this you cannot be saved unless that thing that that only thing is faith putting your faith in christ alone when i was a young man i grew up in a church that taught baptismal regeneration and the thought process went something like this at least this um, disclaimer this is how i understood it as a child that i had to that i had to put my faith in jesus christ step one and that I had to get baptized in the church, step two, and then I would be saved. That was my understanding of what they taught. And what they taught came primarily from Acts 2.38, where Peter wrote, or Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to read this text, Acts 2.38, and to come to the conclusion that you must be baptized to be saved, you have to ignore the rest of Scripture. You just have to ignore it. Because if you read the rest of Scripture, that you understood that salvation was a free gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and many other places, then you wouldn't understand that what Peter was saying here is that the thing that you need to do is repent, Right? And as a first fruit of your repentance or a first result of your repentance, putting your faith, you know, turning away from self, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, as a first fruit of that, be baptized. 
because there are many, many other places in Scripture that tell us that baptism doesn't save people, right? Now, why is this so dangerous? Why is this so dangerous? Why is it so dangerous to pollute the gospel? Well, let's go back for just a minute to Genesis 3 and 4. And you can turn there if you like, but I, uh, let me just speak on it. And I want to thank John MacArthur because he does a brilliant analysis on this, on this topic. Uh, Genesis 3 and 4. In Genesis 3, this is what we call the fall of man. This is where Adam and Eve were in the garden. God had made everything very good. Sin had not entered yet, at least in the physical realm. Sin had not become a thing yet. And Adam and Eve were in perfect fellowship with God, and they were uncovered. They were naked, right? I feel funny saying that from a pulpit, but they were. They were. And of course, you know the story. God <clears throat> told Adam, and Adam, right, you can eat of any tree of the garden, except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot eat of this tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the, that was the sum total of their rules to live by. Well, the serpent came. The serpent deceived Eve. Eve took of the fruit of the tree and ate it, gave some to her husband. He ate it. And then they hear God coming. You know, God's walk, you know, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, right? God is on his way. They hear him coming. And they look at each other and they know that they're naked. They know the difference between good and evil. They, they feel ashamed of their nakedness. And so what do they do? You know, they put the needle in the thread, you know. And then they sew fig leaves together. I don't know how they did it. They sew fig leaves together in an attempt to cover themselves. And God is not fooled. God can see not just what we do, but he can see our hearts. And he knew what had happened. And it was a tremendous... That event, when sin entered the world, was more, I would argue, more cataclysmic than you and I could ever, <laughs> that we could ever really estimate. But what did God do? God uh, killed animals and took their skins and made them coverings and really pointed, in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, this is the third chapter in, God pointed to, the rea to two realities there. Number one, is that in order for sin to be atoned, there has to be blood shed, number one. And secondly, that God is the one who provides our covering, not us. It's God that provides it. Fast forward a chapter, chapter four, Genesis chapter four, Cain and Abel. You know the story. Cain and Abel, they're the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain offers a sacrifice, uh, makes an offering to God. Uh, Abel makes an offering to God. Cain's offering is of grain. The result of his human effort, the result of his t cultivating the ground, drawing, it, drawing the grain from the ground, threshing it, winnowing it, and he offers it to God. Abel offers a perfect animal. And Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God. And Abel's was acceptable to God. Again, pointing us to the reality that in order for God to be pleased, in order for sin to be atoned, blood has to be shed. Well, what happened? 
Cain was upset that his offering was not acceptable to God, and so he rose up and he killed his brother. Murder. This is a very dangerous, getting the gospel wrong is a very dangerous thing. We'll come back to that. Distorting the gospel also flattens the relationship between God and his people. God and his people. Uh, when I say flattens the relationship, here's what I mean. It reduces it to just rule following, a quid pro quo. If you do this, I will give you that. If you go to church every Sunday, and if you give some money in the offering, and if you teach a Sunday school class, and if you train your children up in the Lord, and if you do this, 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 and this, then I'll give you eternal life. <clears throat> now listen, the marriage relationship between a, man and a, between a husband and a wife is very illustrative of why that doesn't work. Hey, Tracy, she's not here today. She's at work. If you cook my meals and if you, you know, cuddle me once in a while and if you, if you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this, then I'll love you and make you my wife. You should, men, you should try that with your wives. See how that goes. Ladies, sit down. Write a contract with your husband. That is not a relationship, I would argue. That is a contractual agreement. And we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you and maybe illustrate for you a little bit about God's love. I've heard this story before, so this is where I drew it out of my memory, but uh, I was talking to a bunch of people after first service. They've never heard it. Anyway, the story goes like this. There's an old story about a man by the name of John Griffith who lived in Oklahoma in 1929. He lost all that he had in the stock market crash, so he moved to Mississippi where he took a job as a bridge operator for a railroad trestle. In 1937, he was involved in a, in a horrific accident. One day, his eight-year-old son, Greg, spent the day with Dad at work. The boy poked around the office and asked dozens of questions as, as eight-year-old boys are prone to do. Dad, what's this? Dad, what's that do? Dad, what's that ship? What's it carrying? Anyway, the bridge was over a river, and whenever a ship came, John had to open the bridge and allow the ship to pass. The day the boy was there with his father, a ship was coming, so John opened the drawbridge. After a moment or two, he realized that his son wasn't in the office anymore, and he looked around, and to his horror, John saw his son climbing around on the gears of the drawbridge. So as any father would do, in lightning speed, he hustled out of the office towards the gears to draw his son off of uh, the danger. But just then, he heard the whistle of a fast-approaching passenger train, the Memphis Express, filled with 400 people. He yelled to his son, but the noise of the now-clearing ship and the oncoming train made it impossible for the boy to hear him. And all of a sudden, John Griffith was placed in the most horrible dilemma that any father would ever want to be placed. Because if he took the time to rescue his son, the train would crash and all aboard would probably perish. But if he, cl if he, closed, if, if he rescued his son, I'm sorry, if he closed the bridge, if he closed the bridge, the boy would be crushed in the gears 
And John made a decision. He pulled the lever and he closed, lowered the bridge. He sacrificed his son for the lives of the 400 people on board. It is said, as the train went by, John could see the faces of the passengers. Some were reading, some were waving, all of them oblivious to what had just taken place and the sacrifice that had just been made for them. Now I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that the passengers did find out later on about John's son and the sacrifice that he made. And they returned to John. And, and they thanked him up one side and down the other for saving their lives that they didn't even realize were in peril. And then they offered him money in thanks. They offered him some sort of service, maybe a dinner out. I mean, how insulting would that be? I would argue that the only right way to honor this man would be to go and to live a life worthy of the sacrifice that had been made, to become the type of people who would do what John did, who would sacrificially give of them, of themselves, for the better of others because of the sacrifice that was made for them. And with that, I read you this verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Philippians 1, 27, 28, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. The only way to live, brothers and sisters, in light of the cross of Jesus Christ, is what Paul has told us in the scriptures, the way to live. Not trying to muster works to earn our salvation that's already been given to us. We've already been saved. God already pulled the lever, right, so to speak. But to recognize the gift that's been given to us and then choose to live a, a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a relationship that we're in. If it were not a relationship, then why on earth would Jesus say these words? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the yoke that's talked about here, it's kind of cryptic language I understand, the yoke that's being talked about here, my understanding is that in, in, the, in the times before Jesus Christ, the rabbis would have students underneath them, and those students, they would, they would give them some regulations to live by. It was called the yoke of that rabbi, right? 
and they would have to live under those regulations. Some of those were pretty punishing, highly self-disciplined, very punishing uh, regulations of life to live by. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, when we read the word of God and we read in here that God is asking us to do things that goes directly contrary to our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eye, and the pride of life, we mistakenly conclude that God doesn't love us because he's not letting us do what comes naturally to us. But I want to argue today, this morning, that this entire book is, is helping us to see that because of the sin that's in our lives, we are blinded to what is best for us. And what God is telling us is that he has given us a way of life, of, a way of life that in the short term may offend our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eye, and our pride of life. It may offend it. But what God is wanting for us is what is better than the short-term gratification we might get in this moment to a life that is filled with the joy of knowing that we're living according to God's word, a, a, a lifestyle that promotes the maximum freedom for ourselves in terms of building good relationships with others. How do we use our words with each other according to God's word, right? We, we practice the four rules of communication. Uh, how do we think about our enemies that are trying to hurt us? We we, we love them, right? We love them, and we want to share the gospel with them and help them come to see the truth because this is what is good for our souls and glorifying to the God that made us, and we can't see it sometimes because our lives are stained by sin. Don't be fooled. Oh, you just want to just leave right now and just praise Jesus, right? I mean, ah! He's so good to us. And then finally, false religion kills true religion. Go back all the way to Cain, right? Cain, who tried to come to God with his own human efforts, was jealous because of Abel, who came to him with blood sacrifice. And that jealousy caused him to kill him. And throughout the history of the church, we have, we've read about Christian martyrs. John the Baptist himself was beheaded. When Israel was practicing idolatry back in the Old Testament, they killed the true prophets of God. According to the early church father, Tertullian, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, was stoned to death in Daphne. And what was his crime? He simply spoke the truth as God had revealed it to him to a people who would not listen. To this day, those who walk in the way of Cain and all those who try to earn God's favor through their actions, those who become proud in the ways of their piety, are part of the groups who try to dismantle and destroy God's way of grace. So, last point. The church must continuously clarify the gospel. Look at verse 2 again. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, so they're trying to correct them, but apparently there's enough confusion here that it's not being clear to everybody. So Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed by the church in Antioch, presumably, to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. So what's the church going to do? The church is going to send two of their best men, Paul and Barnabas, 
to make the long, remember, from Delaware to Chicago-ish journey to Jerusalem to consult the apostles and elders there. Now, we're going to cover that later. But let's just take a few minutes as we conclude here today. Let's just take a few minutes to relish, if we will, in the gospel. To relish in verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So simple, so clear, so not about my works. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 is another clear and simple articulation. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Nowhere do we read in these verses that it depends on our works, that it's not a gift from God. In fact, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. I mean, can it get more clear than that? This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Christmas is coming, and uh, you know, I don't. I, when you receive a gift, that's a gift, right? You know what a gift is. Now, let's just take a few more minutes in the book of Romans and, and hear a little bit longer articulation. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to do something that is going to drive all the OCD folks in the congregation crazy. Grab a pen. You know, this, you, you're, this, is, not a, this is not a salvation issue. But grab a pen if you're prone to do so. And let me just t teach you a little something that maybe you never tried before. Um, this is the plan of salvation as is it, is it is articulated in the book of Romans. A lot of these verses really help people to understand the gospel clearly. So you could either try to memorize all five of these references or you could cheat a little bit and you could, in, your, in the front of your Bible, you know where there's blank pages, where there's nothing there. You know, those are really good for taking notes. You could write just the first reference in there, Romans 3.23. And then when you get to Romans 3.23, next in the margins, next to Romans 3.23, write Romans 6.23, then you'll know where to go next, and so on and so on. Is that cheating? No, it's just being smart, right? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This verse, people usually just, you know, look at this verse and say, this is talking about all of sin, and it is, but it also says that we fall short of God's glory. So the bad news that's in this verse is that God is good, good meaning he's perfect in every way. And this verse is telling us that we're not. We fall short of God's glory. We, we sin. 
And a perfect good God cannot be in the presence of sin. In fact, Romans 6.23 tells us that. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The the result, the wages, what you're naturally going to get from sin is death. And our understanding of that verse lets us know that death is eternal separation from God forever in hell. But then Romans 5, 8 says this, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God took action when we could not. There's no amount of works that we could have done. There's no amount of good we could have tried to accomplish to work our way to perfection. It's impossible. We're already polluted by sin. And so God acted in doing what only he could do, which is sending his perfect son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sin. And then in Romans 3.22, it says that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. What does that mean? That means if we will put our faith, and we've defined faith here before as three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. You have to know the facts of the gospel. You have to believe them to be true. And then you have to, as I've said before, you've had to place the weight of your life on them. Meaning, you have to let, you have to be open to letting Jesus form and reshape how you're going to use your time, your treasure, your words, your life. You're a living sacrifice now. By by faith, you have to submit yourself to that, right? That if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be rewarded with the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He did it. It'll be applied to you if you trust him. And then finally, Romans 10, 9. Whoop. Romans 10, 9. You're familiar with this verse. Romans 10, 9 says, But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your master? Is he the one that you've placed in the driver's seat of your life, right? If, do you believe that he's, he rose from the dead? If that's true, then you will be saved. But if not, if that's not you, Here's the good news. I just said it. If you're you're gathered with us today and you've never ever placed the weight of your life, you've never ever put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can do that today. You can do that right. Today is the day of salvation. Scripture tells us that. You can trust him today and begin to walk in the newness of life. The answer to the big question today, what triggered the church to form the Jerusalem Council? The answer is this. The church in Jerusalem was held because the good news of Jesus Christ, also known as the gospel, was under attack and in danger of being changed. Folks, we have to get this one right. We have to understand the good news of Jesus Christ and articulate it clearly.
So by way of po possible application, here's some things to think about as we go our separate ways and enjoy our Thanksgiving holiday. Some things to think about. First of all, make sure that you understand, a you have a biblical understanding of the good news. Make sure of it. And I think the best way to do that is to practice explaining it to others. And as you do that, you'll understand it. You'll, you'll know it better, right? So work to ensure that you have a biblical understanding of the gospel. Secondly, I would encourage you to memorize the plan of salvation or write the key passages in your Bible so that you always have access to them and can easily find them. Um, if you use your Bible, or your phone as a Bible, I would encourage you to, to make a note or something in there where you can find those passages quickly. And then finally, just to bask in the beauty of the gospel. This free gift, folks, that we've been given, this salvation that Christ has wrought on the cross has now been applied to our life through faith, frees us to love people. It frees us to teach them God's word and to try to live according to God's word. It frees us to be in this relationship with Jesus where we're not going to be perfect, but he always is going to be perfect. And he's going to grow us and change us and shape us into his image. And it's a wonderful thing. So, Father, as we come to you this morning, recognizing that we are all sinners and recognizing that we have no merit, there's nothing that we can do, we come to you naked. We come to you knowing that you know everything about us, all of our sin. You we also know that you created us and that you have told us that you you desire that all people are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Father, I can't imagine what it would be like for me to have to lay down the life of one of my children for others. But Father, you know exactly what that's like. And so, Father, as we go about life, I pray that we would work diligently to ensure that we have a proper understanding of the gospel and can explain it well to others so that they might hear, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God so that they might hear and that they, you might work in their lives to bring them to a saving understanding of who you are for their good and for your glory, Father. And in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed. Happy Thanksgiving.